Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon, by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon the people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negeb. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Our regular preaching, preaching pastor, Pastor John, is away for the next two weeks visiting his father and his family. So this week we have the privilege of hearing from one of our own, from Matthew Allen. If you guys have been attending Sunday school regularly, you've already been blessed by his teaching on the theology and purpose for the nation of Babylon. That's truly been a blessing. And as many of you know, Matt and his family are preparing to leave Pacific Hope shortly as they get ready to head back down to Honduras to finish the work that Lord, the Lord has called them to do there. So... Uh, despite the busyness of the season and how much they have on their plate preparing to move to a new country, Matt's taking the time to prepare himself for not only Sunday school, but also for a sermon this morning. So uh, definitely the true mark of a, of a teacher of God's word that he's prepared for that. So with that, Matt, I'd like to welcome you up and thank you. Thank you, brother. Privilege to uh, share with you from God's word this morning. If I get anything confused between the Sunday school outline and the sermon outline, it's okay. I assure you that nothing will contradict itself, because God's word does not contradict itself. We've been looking at uh, the life of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we know from the beginning portion of uh, the book, was called as a young man from a town called Anathoth, a little town outside of Jerusalem, and he was called to minister to God's people and to deliver uh, a message to them, admonishing them for their lack of faithfulness to God, warning them of coming consequence for their sin, and then ultimately offering them uh, restoration as they would come back and be brought back to the Lord. God used Jeremiah's prophetic ministry in a number of ways. One thing that we might know about Jeremiah is that he was considered the weeping prophet. He was uh, called that because of his genuine um, uh, concern for his people, for his countrymen. Unlike Jonah, who uh, didn't really care if the Ninevites repented, Jeremiah very much did care that his people would turn to the Lord. One another uh, aspect of Jeremiah's ministry that's very interesting is that God spoke uh, to him and through him using parables, using object lessons. Jeremiah was told to make a clay pot, and that clay pot told him certain truths about God's character. He was told to make uh, a yoke of wood, like an ox yoke, to put on his uh, neck. And through all these different sermon illustrations, God communicated to and through Jeremiah. And this morning, uh, we see... uh, God take Jeremiah to task and teach him about real estate. 
So we're going to learn a little bit about real estate as, as God has this unique interaction with the prophet Jeremiah. Let's pray, and we're going to look at this uh, unique chapter together and uh, find out what God wants us to, to learn about a life of obedience, about a life of prayer, and about a life of faith. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together as uh, your people today. We thank you that you have offered us salvation uh, through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you that in your love for us, God, uh, you not only speak to us through the Holy Spirit, but you have given us your word, which is perfect, which is full of detail that have been preserved um, since you've had it recorded for us. We pray that we would look at each of these details and that we would not be um, simply gaining trivia, gaining knowledge, but that we would be gaining a richer insight into who you are and to what you would have us as your people live out. We pray for your discernment as we learn and as we apply this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's learn about real estate. As we start with real estate, I'm going to share with you uh, two principles that I've learned um, in my very limited experience with real estate. The first is important, and you can write this down. That's buy low, sell high. It's a general idea. If you're going to buy a house for a million dollars, you want to know that in five years it's going to be worth 1.5 million and not 500,000. So buy low, sell high. The second thing that I would offer you is is a real estate terminology called speculation. And the definition of real estate speculation is the act of trading in a financial transaction that has significant risk of losing most or all of the initial outlay in expectation of a long-term substantial gain. So keep those two principles in mind as God begins to um, speak to Jeremiah in this text. We're going to be in chapter 32, which we read from this morning. I'm going to read you the first five verses to kind of get our bearings on where we're at in the life and the ministry of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1 says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but surely shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. These first five verses tell us a little bit about what's going on. Jeremiah is prophesying. He's dealing with Zedekiah. Zedekiah, for those of you who were in Sunday school, was a puppet king. Uh, He was a vassal of the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon allowed him to rule, but he had to pay heavy tributes, and just about any decision he made had to go through the hands of of the king king of Babylon. Zedekiah had some conflicting uh, feelings towards Jeremiah. He often would consult him, and if he liked the advice, he'd take it, and if he didn't, he'd imprison him. (laughs) In this particular case, uh, there's actually a little bit of mercy in the fact that um, Jeremiah is under house arrest. He's shut up in the uh, courtyard of the guard, That was the merciful approach because everybody else wanted to kill Jeremiah. Zedekiah is at least uh, saving him from that fate, but he's in prison. So as we start to look at this lesson uh, in real estate, the first thing we need to know about context is that Jeremiah is in prison. Um, Our family plays a lot of board games. A favorite board game is Monopoly. A favorite rule to fight over is whether or not you can collect rent and buy properties when you're in jail. (laughs) I don't know how it's played at your houses, but at our house, if you're in jail, you can't buy land. And you certainly can't collect rent. 
So that's where Jeremiah finds himself. He's shut up in, in jail. And now we're going to pick up at verse 6 where God comes to him and gives him a very unexpected explanation. I'll read 6, 7, and 8. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy the field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. This was an interesting message for Jeremiah to receive. He's being told, hey, your cousin's going to come. He's going to try to sell you land. You should buy it. And then in verse 7, it says, then his cousin shows up, and he does what he's been told to do by the Lord. Now, we know the first problem is he's in prison. The second problem, which is perhaps a bigger problem, is where Anathoth is located. Um, The book of Joshua describes the territories that were assigned to each of the tribes, and Anathoth is specifically mentioned, and it's a hill country. It's a pasture land, probably about five miles outside of Jerusalem. So great for farming, great for agriculture, but we learned in the first five verses that it's currently used as an enemy camp. The Babylonians have set up their military base there and are preparing to continue uh, their work of finishing off the city of Jerusalem. So it's not exactly a great time to buy an Anathoth. The real estate market is not looking good. This land is entirely in enemy hands. Um, my youngest son and I like to go biking up in uh, San Pasqual Valley, up near Rancho Bernardo Escondido. And it's very interesting, if you read some of the historical plaques along that way, all of that area uh, was Mexico. <laughs> so if you think about it in those types of terms, if you want to go buy land and spend a couple million pesos on that land, you go to the uh, courthouse down in uh, Mexico and you try to buy the land, and you're like, you know, that land's not for sale, that's actually California, <laughs> right? So the problem with Anathoth is that it's occupied by the enemy, It's not a good time to buy. He's in jail. The land is occupied by the enemy. And he's surrounded by enemy forces. What's curious about this passage is that before um, Jeremiah's cousin comes to him, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, just a heads up, your cousin's going to come. And then the word of the Lord comes to pass, his cousin shows up. Um, Philip Ryken describes uh, his interpretation of this Hanimal, the cousin. It says that uh, Hanimal is the son of Shalom, your uncle, which makes him his cousin, right? He said, this is the proverbial used car salesman in every family. This guy shows up and says, hey, I've got a sweet deal for you. I've got some great land. You should really buy it. And um, it's interesting how he presents this, this argument. He says, you know, this is for sale. And he says, it's uh, your right for possession and redemption to buy it. Buy it for yourself. And um, that's an interesting uh, sales approach that he took. But certainly uh, Hanamel, this cousin, knew as well as Jeremiah did the word of the law. And the law of God was very specific about kinsmen redeemers and how land was to stay in a family. If you look uh, at Leviticus chapter 25, you'll see um, some explanation really of um, what's supposed to be happening with this land purchase. Hanamel knew the, the word of the law and comes to Jeremiah and, and quotes scripture, sort of a, a forced sell, if you will. Leviticus twenty five twenty five says, If your brother or family member becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So Hanamel shows up with his guilt trip, says, I got this land for you to buy. 
And uh, certainly, Jeremiah may have had some appreciation for this land. Anathoth was, in fact, his boyhood home. He may have gone over to his cousin's house to play and may have had some, some great memories of this land. But nonetheless, he was in no position to be buying it. But not only did Hanamel want him to buy it, but God told him to buy it. And here is a really powerful application for us as believers. What God demands of believers is illogical obedience. And I see that in two senses here. First is that um, God told him to do it. Uh, the word of the Lord said this was going to happen. But God also gave that instruction in Leviticus 25.25. When we talk about decisions that we're making as believers, if we feel like God is indicating that we do something, that has to be confirmed by and affirm Scripture. God will never tell us to do anything that is in contradiction to his written word, right? What we see here is Jeremiah knows by the, the written word of the law, by the Mosaic law, that it's his obligation to buy the land. He also knows that God told him to do it. And so he acts in obedience. He takes that step and he buys the land. And what we're going to see now in verse 9 and moving forward is that Jeremiah, in illogical obedience, goes about this real estate transaction. Take everything you know about buy low, sell high, right? And throw that out the window. When we talk about real estate uh, in um, practical terms, we do things like pulling comps, right? We look at what property in the area is going for. So um, you can picture Jeremiah checking Zillow, right? Yeah, the, this one in Bethlehem has been on the market for a while. <laughs> it's not look, looking so good. And he, he's doing the, all of this stuff that's going through his head. He's like, this, this is not a good transaction. But God told him to. And so in verse 9, we see this detailed account of this real estate transaction. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Mashiach, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. These are, these are powerful words in that they're captured with such beautiful detail. Um, Baruch is one of my favorite people in Scripture, uh, very little is known about him except that he was the scribe of Jeremiah. He was Jeremiah's wingman and would go places with Jeremiah and would take notes on what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah had to send a letter to the king. Hey, Baruch, write this down, right? Baruch was a, a member of nobility, and as far as social class goes, he would have been more educated and more wealthy than Jeremiah, but he um, was told by God to take this job that might seem a little bit more menial of being a scribe, and he would go with Jeremiah throughout the years of his ministry. He stuck by Jeremiah through thick and thin, and it's because of the ministry of Baruch that we can actually read this text this morning. Praise God for that. We don't know a whole lot about the guy, but he wrote this down. God used him to preserve Jeremiah, to preserve uh, Lamentations, and perhaps even part of uh, Kings and Chronicles. So um, Baruch is mentioned here, and Baruch is uh, helping to effectuate this real estate transaction. So what does Jeremiah do? In illogical obedience, he calls together everybody else there that's in jail, right? Hanamel shows up. It's like prison visiting hours, right? He may have had to do the transaction through bars, two-way glass, who knows, right? And, and so 
Jeremiah takes this step of faith, and he counts out 17 shekels of silver. And he's then signing the deal. He's having other people watch and observe what's happening so that they are, are seeing this transaction. And certainly there would have been some snickers in the bunch, like laughing. Really? He's buying this land? This land is worthless. This land is overrun by the Babylonians. This makes no sense at all. But the word of God tells us with much uh, detail that uh, this transaction is being witnessed. And uh, it talks about the two copies. It says in verse 11, Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions of, and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, and in the pre- presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. If any of you have ever read about the Dead Sea Scrolls or studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that they were uh, discovered in a cave in Qumran in pottery. And the pottery was sealed in such a way that they could be preserved. It was written on paper. And uh, interestingly enough, as the people of Judah had cultural interchange with Babylon, they learned a great deal about keeping, keeping records and keeping things written. And so um, Jeremiah used a tactic that he may well have learned from uh, the librarians and the scholars of Babylon to seal this thing up in a jar and to preserve it for a long time. It's like the, the uh, ancient equivalent of a safety deposit box. And so he's doing this transaction with all of this detail, and, and Baruch's been given these specific instructions. And what's really powerful about this is that the instruction there from the Lord is that these deeds, these paperwork, will last for a long time. There's a great application for us as believers. We're to make decisions and be illogically obedient to God with the long view in mind. Not looking at how is this property going to benefit Jeremiah in the moment, but what is that property going to symbolize in the longer term? And that is how we ought to live our lives. When we raise our children, when we teach our kids, the seeds that we're sowing in their life may never come to fruition in our lives, but it may impact our kids or our grandkids or our great-grandkids, right? The decisions that we make in our workplace to share scripture with an unbelieving coworker may bring about repentance, may bring about salvation, but long after you've left that company, you don't get to see that. We're, t- we're, talking, we're called to take the long view on obedience. And in Jeremiah's case, his illogical obedience would mean that he would never set foot on his land. His pasture land would never have one of, one of his cattle on it. He'd never build a house there. And in fact, from the time that he bought it, we know that he never got to see it. He bought that based on God's clear instruction, that illogical obedience, based on what Scripture told him and based on what God told him to do. Taking the long view is something that we as, as believers are called to do. So this first section, we're seeing Jeremiah's illogical obedience. Verses 16 through 25 we're going to be looking at Jeremiah um, acting with prayer, acting prayerfully. One of the things that I love about Jeremiah is that between Baruch's detail and uh, what we can observe, I can see that Jeremiah was sarcastic. Jeremiah was raw with God. He would complain to God. He would cry out to God. He would have these dialogues with God and, and really share his frustration, not only with how his countrymen would act, but also with some of the instructions that, that God would give him. And Jeremiah's prayer that we're going to read in 16 through 25 begins with just a little bit of this, this angst, this frustration. It says, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your, arch- and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. 
Stopping there for just a moment, what Jeremiah's got going on right now is buyer's remorse. Right? He's made the offer <laughs> on the house, so to speak. And during the walkthrough, you find out that there's, uh, you know, lead in the paint, right? You find out that there's uh, a rat problem, right? He, you go through all of these things, and that's what Jeremiah's got going on right now. He just shelled out his 17 shekels of silver. He just got a clay pot with a piece of paper in it. <laughs> Congratulations, right? He's got this, this property that he just bought, and he's got buyer's remorse. He's obeyed the Lord, but now he's questioning, did I do the right thing? And that's how his prayer begins. His prayer begins with, ah, Lord God. And it's not a, an ah, I praise you. It's a, what did I do, Lord? It's a frustration. It echoes in a lot of ways the verbiage that we see um, in Romans 8, where the Holy Spirit intercedes and prays um, and, and uh, allows us to pray to the Lord with groans that words can't express. Jeremiah is frustrated. Jeremiah is not sure what he's just done. But he continues, and watch how he prays. He prays with a clear view of who it is that he's obeying. He says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of what you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians, to the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy a field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. What a remarkable prayer. Jeremiah begins with this real frustration. God, okay, I'm going to obey, but this doesn't make sense. But then, not only does he praise God, but he's also recounting to himself God's faithfulness. How critical is that for us in our prayer lives? When we have those moments where we're, we're doubting God, where we're questioning God, pray in a way that reminds you of all the times that God has been faithful. In our family, we make reference a lot to stacking stones by the Jordan, right? Joshua and the people of Israel were told to to stack stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the instructions specifically were, when your kids ask you what these rocks are all about, tell them about my faithfulness, because you guys are going to forget quickly. And that's exactly the problem with us. And that's exactly the problem with our human condition. We quickly forget God's power, and we quickly forget God's faithfulness. And so when we pray, we ought to pray with that in mind. Go over God's track record. Has he ever not been faithful to us? No. Go over God's faithfulness. Go back through those times in your life where you've seen God's hand with clarity. Recount that, and then set that right next to your doubt. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you bailed us out of Egypt. You gave us the promised land just like you promised. And, and not only did you promise the promised land, but you also promised us punishment for our disobedience, right? And so Jeremiah is seeing this as well. He's looking at God's character. 
And I like how Jeremiah ends this prayer. Verse 25, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. This prayer is bookended with his human struggle, right? He begins with this frustration, Ah, Lord God. He recounts God's faithfulness, and then he ends it with, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right? That's what I read when we see this. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money. Jeremiah's prayer is earnest. Jeremiah's prayer is sincere and gives us much to uh, apply to our lives as believers as we act in illogical obedience. The next verses, verses 26 through 35, are God's initial response to Jeremiah. It's a response that deals with the heart of his people and the punishment that he is uh, placing upon them. Verse 26, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Look how God responds to Jeremiah's, uh, Jeremiah's admonition. Uh, back in verse 17, says, Nothing is too hard for you. And God responds with that rhetorical question. You're right, Jeremiah. Nothing's too hard for me. Nothing's too difficult for me. Obey me. And then the subsequent verses, he goes through and talks about how the Chaldeans, how the Babylonians are about to um, finish off Jerusalem. The time ahead is not looking good. As we, as we think of real estate, uh, the, uh, the trend line isn't looking good. It's looking like Jeremiah's 17 shekels are going to quickly turn into a complete loss. Right? But remember speculation. The act of trading in a financial transaction that has significant risk of losing most or all in its initial outlay with the expectation of a longer-term substantial gain. So God's response here is recounting the punishment, and then we're going to move ahead to verse 36, the section that Ryan and and we uh, read together as a body, looking at God's response to Jeremiah's illogical obedience and to his sincere prayer. Verse 36, Now thus, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Stop there for just a moment to reflect on what God is saying. He's recounting the new covenant. He's explaining to them through Jeremiah what his long-term vision is for the people. Forget the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Forget the siege ramps. Forget worthless land. Take the long-term view. The long-term view is pointing to Jesus Christ as the redeemer of this sinful and rebellious people. The long-term view is that not only is he going to bring them back out of exile in Babylon, which, by the way, he has them there for a purpose, but he's also going to do good to them and have an intimate and restored relationship with them. Him being their holy God and Israel being his chosen people. He talks about bringing them back from the places that they've been dispersed. We know um, from uh, what we see in the Old Testament, uh, 
that there were various waves of exile. As uh, Babylon came, they didn't just uh, show up to destroy the city, but they also came to take slaves, to take exiles, and they took people back to, uh, to their country. And um, those Jewish people were taken back in what, uh, in Greek, the word is uh, diaspora. It's to, uh, to disperse or to sow seeds. Interestingly, the word uh, diaspora is to like sow seeds. We talked about this in Sunday school. And what, what uh, God is doing by taking his people into captivity, into Babylon, is sowing seeds, putting his pa- people in close contact with the Babylonians as the enemy so that his people can be sanctified and so that his people can bear witness to the Babylonians of who they are. God is saying, I've spread you out. This is purposeful. But I'm also have your best interest in mind, and I'm going to bring you back to this place. The long-term view on this real estate transaction. God says in verse 37, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them, in my anger, and in my wrath, and in my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That word, brothers and sisters, has been fulfilled in us. That has been fulfilled through Christ and is applicable to us, right? Who, who are his people? His people who have identified themselves with the sacrifice of Messiah that Jeremiah w- just was pointing to through, uh, through Christ. We have been made his people. Once we were not his people, but now we are. We're called, and that promise is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And so as uh, Jeremiah prays this, God is telling Jeremiah, listen, in the long term here, this real estate transaction doesn't matter. This little piece of land you bought is insignificant. What I have is a plan that's much bigger than you. It's about my plan for my people. And isn't that an interesting thing about object lessons? When we look at uh, Jeremiah and his real estate purchase, he could have easily thought that his message's obedience was only applicable to himself. This object lesson only was uh, purposeful to teach him. But that's never the case. When God demands obedience of his believers, it is for the eyes of the watching world and is for the good of his people. When we obey, we have no idea what the ripple implications of are other people watching our lives. Jeremiah thought that that object lesson was just for him, and now as God responds to his prayer, he makes it clear that this obedience has implications that would be for his people hundreds, if not um, 2,000 years later. That's an amazing application of, of God's truth through this message. Let's um, look at how God continues to, uh, to respond in, in dealing with uh, Jeremiah's illogical obedience and responding to his prayer. He says in verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they will not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought this great disaster on this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying, it is desolation, without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the hill country, and in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev. I will restore their fortunes, declare the Lord." So we have um, both a short-term and a long-term prophecy that God is giving here, right? The long-term points to Christ. The neat thing about Old Testament prophecy is we can kind of think about it like uh, as if we're looking at mountains. If we uh, look out towards East County, 
we can see one set of mountains is a little closer, you know, Mission Trails area. And if you look past that, you can see out towards Julian, right? There's the, the, the near-term mountain and the, the, the further away mountain. And that's what we see in this prophecy. God is talking in the long term about Christ, about the everlasting covenant that he makes through his people and his long-term good for his people. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good for them. But then he brings it in a little, foc- a little closer. He brings it closer, and he brings it about 70 years from the time that Jeremiah buys his land. The Babylonian captivity, about 70 years long. Jeremiah buys this land, and uh, everyone certainly had questions about why he was buying the land, this illogical obedience. And God assures Jeremiah, look, within 70 years, within this time, fields are going to be, again, bought and sold for money. Anathoth will again be inhabited. What's remarkable is if we read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see God's people coming back out of captivity. And Ezra and Nehemiah have some similar detail, and they have a census of people. It gives names of people and places where they inhabited. We find Anathoth. We, found, we find Jeremiah's hometown, and we find that people are again inhabiting those places. And certainly, because the deed was stored away for a long time and preserved, those men of Anathoth would have come back and said, you know what, that land over there, that was Jeremiah's land. That was the piece of property that Jeremiah bought, because Jeremiah obeyed the Lord. And so God's promise, which is ultimately what Jeremiah in faith is acting on, is that fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem. What seemed like a really lousy investment, Jeremiah obeyed, purchased, and in the long term, God uh, would redeem that and allow people to come back again and see how his hand of faithfulness um, redeemed what Jeremiah was told to do. Throughout um, the study of the book of Jeremiah, I've been richly blessed uh, by a commentary. I've recommended it uh, before by Philip Ryken. And the commentary is um, rich in not only explaining the historical context, but in also bringing about a preaching and an application. The series of books is uh, called Preaching the Word, and it, it helps apply what might be a, a difficult message to understand. What is it that buying land uh, in 600 B.C. has to tell us today as believers? Riken says it this way, and, and I'll read this quote to you. It's a little lengthy, but it's worthwhile. Keep this in view. Preserving the title to the property was an act of faith. When Jeremiah signed and sealed the deed, he was banking on God's ability to deliver his promises. By faith, he was making an investment in the kingdom of God. Derek Kidner observes, to buy land overrun by the world's conqueror and then to take elaborate care of the title deeds was a striking affirmation, as solid as the silver that paid for it, that God would bring his people back to their inheritance. Even though Jeremiah would not live to see that day, he made sure the documents would be around to prove that God was faithful to his promise. Isn't that remarkable? That's amazing how God would um, give Jeremiah this unique opportunity to demonstrate his faith, to demonstrate his obedience. Riken goes on to ask this question to the believers who would read the commentary. He says, Do you have the faith to act on God's promises, even if some of them will not be fulfilled until the end of history? Jeremiah had that kind of faith. He had a major life decision based on what God had promised to do seven decades later. Christians make the same kind of decisions every day. They do strange things because they trust the promises of God. Some Christians get married. How odd. With a divorce rate so high, why would anyone want to get married? 
Christians get married because God tells them to and because they trust his faithfulness for the future. Riken goes on to give the application here. He says, Some Christians raise families. This, too, is becoming increasingly radical. Recently, a friend went to a dentist who is expecting... Uh, recently, a Christian woman went to see her dentist whose wife was expecting a baby. The patient told him how wonderful it was to raise children, and afterwards, the dental hygienist told her that she could tell whether or not people were Christians by what they said to the dentist about having a baby. Non-Christians talked about what a nuisance it is to have children, but Christians viewed them as a gift from the Lord. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) Riken continues, Some Christians go to distant lands as missionaries, which is even stranger than raising a family. They leave behind all the conveniences of American culture. Why on on earth would anyone do that? They do it because God calls them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because they trust his promise that he will go with them. The list goes on and on. Some Christians move into the city on purpose. Some Christians feed the homeless or tutor the ignorant. Others reach across ethnic and economic barriers to form friendships. Still others give up one night a week to study the Bible and pray in small groups. Other Christians even give away 10% of their income or more for the work of the church. All of these behaviors seem strange to the post-Christian mind. The strongest cultural movement in the 21st century America will be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is only one explanation for the strange things that Christians do. They believe in the promises of God. They trust what God has said about family or evangelism or compassion or stewardship, and they act accordingly. That's powerful. That is and ought to be why we do what we do. God requires of his people an illogical obedience. That obedience, first and foremost, has to conform to his word. God will never ask us to do anything that contradicts his word. God will give us the Holy Spirit to indicate to us when we're supposed to act, right? And it might make, not make any sense by world standards. As we pray, as we seek the Lord's face, as we acknowledge God's character and we recount to ourselves his faithfulness, he responds to us and builds up our faith. The last verse is 36 through 44 of Jeremiah chapter 32. God is telling Jeremiah, don't worry about this. Land again is going to have some value, but more importantly than that, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, as a savior to redeem my sinful people, and I'll bring them back out of, ex- of exile, out of captivity to sin once and for all. All of those things will be fulfilled. God is faithful to his promise and desires to affirm the decisions that we make as a people who seek to serve him. My prayer is that um, as a body of believers, we would be prepared to, to make big decisions, to take steps of faith, to be illogically obedient in a way that builds his kingdom and that takes the long view, right? You might not ever see the seeds that are sown. You might not ever reap the benefits. But when God calls us to be involved in ministry, there will be results. Praise God for that. His word never comes back void. He is faithful. Let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to help us in in applying all of these things um, to to our lives. May we take Jeremiah's um, real estate advice and, and do some speculation, understanding that it might seem like a really bad investment now, but it'll pay off, right? Whoever wants to lose, whoever wants to uh, gain the, the opportunity to serve Christ might lose it all in the, for, in the short term, but in the long term, God is faithful to his promise. Let's pray.